This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, well, I'm really, really pleased to be here. Um, good to see so many people. I was saying to Surya Mati, I've never seen such a big crowd outside of the London Buddhist Centre, so yeah, it's obviously a very thriving Sangha here, which is lovely to see. Um, just to say a little bit about the Heart Sutra before um, we go into it in more detail, uh, Surya Mati mentioned that it's part of a body of Buddhist literature called the Perfection of Wisdom, and the Sanskrit name for that is Pranya Paramita. Pranya Paramita just means the Perfection of Wisdom. And it's part of the Mahayana school of Buddhism, which is like the second wave of Buddhism after the original, the first wave, which started with the Buddha himself. The second wave, maybe about 500 years after the Buddha died, the Mahayana. And the Pranyaparamita, the perfection of wisdom literature, um, started quite early um, during the Mahayana um, period, if you like, and lasted for quite a long time. And there's loads and loads and loads and loads of perfection of wisdom texts. Um, one of them, I think, is the perfection of wisdom in 800 lines, oh sorry, 8,000 lines, and then you get it in 32,000 lines, and then you get the text that uh, Suryamati mentioned, the Ratnaguna Samchai Gatha, which she'll tell you about next week, I believe. The Diamond Sutra, which some of you might have heard of, is a perfection of wisdom text, and the Heart Sutra is a perfection of wisdom text. And the Heart Sutra is the heart of the perfection of wisdom. That's why it's called the Heart Sutra. It's, it's sort of trying to summarize the perfection of wisdom. And it, interestingly, so you've got, you know, the 32,000 lines and the 16,000, all that sort of thing, but you've also got the perfection of wisdom in a, um, in a mantra. Um, those of you who've done um, the Sevenfold Puja and chanted the Heart Sutra, probably know the, the gate, gate, paragate, you know that one? That's, that's supposedly the encapsulation of the perfection of wisdom in a mantra. And there are actually three perfection of wisdom mantras. Uh, we'll chant one of them in a minute just to sort of start this off. Um, so that one, the gate, gate one, is the, is the kind of the, um, the encapsulation of the whole literature in a, in a mantra. There's another one which we'll chant, which uh, means um, homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the glorious, which um, if you read any of the translations of the text, traditionally they would start with that. Maybe Kuladich will go into this on the day, we'll have to see, but uh, often they start with homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy, and then the text will start from there. And then there's another uh, perfection, Pranyaparamita mantra, which is the mantra of the goddess Pranyaparamita, which goes, Omadi Hum Swaha. So that's the one for her. So there's three perfection of wisdom mantras. And then you get the perfection of wisdom encapsulated in one syllable, which is R. So it goes from the huge to the tiny. But I'd like to start just um, by calling up, if you like, the perfection of wisdom. By, um, um, what, what would you call it? Tradition. Uh, by launching into it, by doing that second mantra, the um, homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy. I'll start it off and we'll, we can do it together. 
And then after that, we'll chant the Heart Sutra in unison, as we'd normally do during the puja. If you know it, join in. If you don't know it, either read it or just sit and listen. Just let it have an effect. Because what I'm really wanting to explore with you tonight is the effect of the, perfect, of the Heart Sutra, not just what it means in sort of intellectual terms, but the actual effect that it has. Um, in this book here, if you want to know more about this body of literature, uh, this book here of Sangharachita's Wisdom Beyond Words, it's all in here. He's got um, a whole section on the Heart Sutra, a section on the Diamond Sutra, and one on the Ratnagun Samchayagatha. So if you wanted to follow it up, it's in here. And um, one, one of the points that Bhante makes in his lectures is, um, the Heart Sutra, with all of these texts, is it's not just about the meaning. It's a bit like listening to poetry. It just has an effect, even if it doesn't make any sense or, you know, you don't like it or whatever. Somehow it has an effect. So you can experiment with that if you want right now. You can just listen and let it have an effect. Whatever effect it has, not any particular effect, just let it have its effect. Okay, so we'll do the mantra and then we'll chant the text in unison. And I do hope I get the new words right because I know they've changed them slightly since my day. So, <clears throat> anyway. So we'll just sit for a moment and then I'll start the Om Bhagavatyai mantra. And we'll just do that for a little bit till it dies down. <clears throat> and then just start the Heart Sutra.
Heart Sutra. The Bodhisattva of Compassion, when he meditated deeply, saw the emptiness of all five scandals and sundered the bonds that caused him suffering. Here then, falls no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. Form is only emptiness, emptiness only form. Feeling, thought and choice, consciousness itself, are the same as this. All things are unimaginable. They are not born or destroyed, nor are they stained or pure, nor do they wax or wane. So, in emptiness, no form, no feeling, thought or choice, nor is there consciousness, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, no colour, sound, smell, taste, touch or what the mind takes hold of, nor even act of sensing, no ignorance or enter. 
So there's the Heart Sutra. When I've asked other people in other groups to, um, you know, sort of share their responses, the kind of things that tend to come up, just tell me if any of these resonate, um, some people say fear. They experience fear in relation to the Heart Sutra. Some people just say it's incomprehensible and completely baffling. It doesn't make any sense to them whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Um, some people say they start, they start release when they hear it. They experience relief or peace. Some people find it boring and repetitive. That's what people say, you know, I mean, it's a response. It was somebody at Dana Kosha. Um, some people find it inspiring. And some people experience um, a, a sense of letting go. And there are various other responses to it. But, I mean, I think what's clear about it is that it brings up mixed responses for people. There's usually a mixture of um, fear, incomprehension, but also for a lot of people, maybe not for everybody, but for a lot of people, something of um, an inspiring nature, and they don't quite know why, or a sense of peace or whatever. Um, even though it doesn't quite make sense, seems to be you know, quite a common response. And it was certainly my response when I first came across it. Um, I'm not sure how, how much people know the Heart Sutra these days, but in, in my day, when I first came along, we would do the sevenfold puja most weeks at our class, and we'd chant the Heart Sutra. So it was actually the first Buddhist sutra, complete Buddhist sutra, that I learned off by heart. And I actually value that. I find that a very useful thing to, to do, to learn any sutras off by heart. But the Heart Sutra happened to be the first one because that was the one we used to do in the puja. So if you don't know it off by heart, I would encourage you to learn it off by heart. Um, one of the reasons um, I'm encouraging you to do it is that well, it kind of pops up. I can remember the first time it popped up for me. I might have, I don't know how long I'd been a Buddhist, maybe about three years, something like that. Um, or less but I knew the Heart Sutra at that point um, and my mother's my friend's mother was dying at that point she was in a hospice in County Durham um, and I went to visit her spend some time with my friend and with her mother um, and I can remember walking around the grounds it was a beautiful day It was, I think it might even have been May it was a bit like today, just a gorgeous day and um, she was sort of dying of cancer in this hospice and just outside the place was sort of full of light and um, flowers and the breeze was blowing. It was just, it was very strong, very poignant. And it just started, form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness no other than form. And I thought, blimey, where did that come from? Well, it, come, it, came, it came because I knew it. And the situation just sort of triggered it, if you like. So in a sense, you could say it was a little insight experience with a small eye. And if we know pieces of Dharma off by heart, we're kind of feeding that. We're feeding the, you know, the uh, possibility for those things to arise within us in response to very strong experiences. So, it's, yeah, it made a big difference for me. And it's come up since in similar situations, particularly that form and emptiness thing where suddenly it doesn't seem so clear anymore what, you know, the, the difference between what's solid and substantial and what isn't. It's, sort of enca it's encapsulated. So, yes, that's why I'm encouraging you to to learn it, to use the opportunity to learn it. Um, 
But you might sort of say, well, what, what is the Heart Sutra about? You know, what, all these words and that, and there seems to be lots of paradox in it, but what is it actually about? Um, well, I think the key word in it, the one that keeps coming up all the way through, seems to be emptiness, which is a particular translation for a traditional term, Mahayana term, shunyata. But there are other words we can use. Sometimes people, um, when they hear the Heart Sutra, they think, oh, it's very nihilistic, or it's just about everything's nothing. Really, there's nothing that matters. It's all sort of, you know, nothing's important. It's all a bit kind of grim in a way, you know. Um, and that's, I think that's a tendency we can fall into when hearing this literature. We can sort of think, oh, that just means that everything I've experienced and everything that's important to me really doesn't matter. But, but I know that it does matter, you know. So um, emptiness can be a bit of a misnomer. It, we can sort of think, oh, well, emptiness means there's nothing there. But there are other, um, other ways of expressing that. Um, I thought of a few... Um, synonyms for shunyata, emptiness, a few other translations. Some of them are, are more kind of um, accurate and some are more poetic. So I've mixed them all up. See how, they, see how they grab you or otherwise. You might have your own, of course. Openness, boundlessness, non-fixedness, the blue sky, bliss, impermanence, insubstantial, subject to conditions, freedom, unpredictable, unknown, mysterious, could go in any direction, limitless, interconnectedness, Indra's net, no self, no self and other, process, flow. So, you know, we can use any of these words. And you can, you know, if you do learn the Heart Sutra, if you use it in your practice, you can substitute words that inspire you or that give you more of a sense. You could sit there and chant, form is no other than boundlessness boundlessness no other than form and just sort of experiment with it see what effect it has on you it might I mean emptiness might work for you but something else might open you up a bit more so the sutra is about emptiness well I just use emptiness because that's the word that comes up but for emptiness do understand all of these other things as well um And it starts with the Bodhisattva of compassion. The Bodhisattva of compassion, when he meditated deeply, saw the emptiness of all five skandhas and sundered the bonds that caused him suffering. The Bodhisattva of compassion is Avalokiteshvara. And sometimes people find the Heart Sutra and the Perfection of Wisdom literature a bit headbanging, a bit kind of like, oh my God, you know, what is all of this? And it doesn't make any sense and it's all words. And, but actually, it's the Bodhisattva of compassion who sees it. So even though it's a wisdom tradition, it's the Bodhisattva of compassion who sees it. And you know, if you've been doing the Brahma Vihara practices, the Karuna Bhavna, um, you might know that compassion arises when 
metta, when maitri comes, or loving kindness comes into connection with suffering. So this heart sutra, this sutra is the response, if you like, of the bodhisattva of compassion to suffering. So he sees suffering, basically, or she sees suffering, and the response is compassion, and the heart sutra flows from that. It's quite interesting. And sundered the bonds that caused him suffering, sort of cut off the ties, the attachments that led to that suffering. So it's, it's a very emotional thing. And I think it's quite interesting that, you know, we can think of it, as I say, as headbanging or intellectual or nonsensical or paradoxical or whatever. And yet, often it still has an effect, it has an emotional effect. I would suspect that this is the reason why, because it's a response to suffering. And then the, um, the sutra goes on to say, well, it goes on to say that a number of different things are empty, boundless, limitless, interconnected, whatever you want to call it, unsubstantial, insubstantial, impermanent. And um, the sutra starts off by saying that um, what we see, what, I suppose our experience, basically, as human beings is um, empty, or without a fixed self, unfixed, limitless. Um, I suppose you could sort of see um, our experience as human beings largely um, as sort of divided between an experience of ourselves and our experience of the world, including other beings. So sort of self and world or self and other. That's a kind of basic dichotomy, isn't it? The basic sort of um, two, two sides of a particular coin, if you like that we tend to think. We tend to think there's me, everything that I can control and everything that, you know, I can sort of have immediate, um, yeah, sort of control over. And then there's everything out there, some of which I can influence and control to some extent, some of which I can't. And that's other. That's how we tend to see the world. And in the sutra, basically what the sutra is saying is that actually that's not true. Self and world is empty, is um, boundless, is interconnected. There isn't this hard and fast, rigid division between them. In the first bit where um, the sutra talks about the five skandhas, which is form is no empty, not, none other than emptiness, and feeling, and thought, choice, and consciousness, they're called the five skandhas in original Buddhism, um, um, sort of um, basic Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha. And it was a way, if you like, that the um, very early Buddhists started to um, try to sort of analyze a human being. They say a human being has no self. All they have, the only thing that a human being is, is form, feeling, their thoughts, their choice, that's sort of like their direction or whatever, and, um, and consciousness. So that, that's what a human being is. Other than that, there's, there's no self, there's no core to it. What this text is saying is actually... All of those five things, they're not solid and fixed either. They're all empty. They're all boundless. They're all um, mysterious. They change. One has a feeling one minute. Two minutes later, you know, where's it gone? <laughs> it's, it's not us. It doesn't define us. Same with our thoughts. Everything else. Even the same as our form. You know, if I sort of think of my form when I was seven or eight and... Here I am, 46, and I think, well, where is that child? She's just gone, you know. It's a mystery. How did that happen? So, so that what we think about ourselves, 
There's nothing solid there. We can look for that. So that is a, um, a Buddhist reflection practice, isn't it? To sort of look for the self. Well, where is, who am I? Where is me? See if we can find it. And then the, the next bit um, where the sutra says, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, no color, sound, smell, taste, touch, or what the mind takes hold of, nor even act of sensing. So those five senses, well, six senses in Buddhism because mind is considered as a sense, you know, things that come in through the mind as well as the normal five senses that we tend to think of in the West. Um, in a way, that's how we experience the world. We wouldn't know there was a world out there if we didn't you know, have those senses to sense them with, would we? So, you know, to the extent that we experience things through the senses, we think, right, there's something out there and we know what it is because we can see it, we can hear it, we can smell it, we can touch it, we can taste it, or we can think about it. And what the sutra is saying is that actually that's not fixed either. It's a continual and constantly changing process. And basically what, what, what the Heart Sutra is saying is that what we think of as ourselves and what we think of as the world, they're just not what we think, what we think they are at all. They're quite mysterious. We think we know what they are. We think we know what we are. We think we know what the world is. Actually, we haven't a clue. <laughs> That's what it's saying. And also it's saying that they're a lot more connected than you think. There's a, you know, they're a lot less separate than you think. Uh, that's the whole thing about conditionality, isn't it? Sort of things arising in dependence upon conditions. I always notice this when I meditate, actually, because I live in a community in London and... Um, I go into the shrine, but we have a sit in the morning at half seven, which I usually go to because I have quite a regular lifestyle. And other people in the community, sometimes they turn up, sometimes they don't. But if I meditate on my own, my experience is quite different to when I, if I meditate with other people. Well, how, I mean, how can that be? I mean, you know, how is it that people have an effect when we're not communicating verbally or physically or anything? How does it have an effect? And yet it does. You know, there's something going on. There's all sorts of stuff going on that we just, we just don't really know about. At least I don't know about anyway. It's quite mysterious how we affect each other and how things happen. You know, so that's what the sutra is saying. It's saying this emptiness, you could say it's mysterious. All these things are mysterious. They're not what we think they are. And then it goes on. So it's said that we really don't know anything about what we are, self. We really don't know anything about what the world is, things that we experience as other. So you could say, if you like, um, in Buddhist terms, well, what can, you know, what can you rely on then? What can we say that we know something about? Well, at least Buddhism, there we are, we've got the Dharma. That, you know, that will tell us what things are about. We can rely on that. We can put ourselves behind that. But what the sutra then goes on to do is just to take a big swipe at the Dharma and say, actually, all of that's empty as well. Because you've got the bit that says, no ignorance or end of it, nor all that comes of ignorance, no withering, no death, no end of them. That's actually, um, what the sutra is talking about is the wheel of life, which for those of you who know it starts with ignorance, then goes on to samskaras, you know, sort of habits, and then consciousness, and then um, form, etc., etc. And you've got the 12 links, the 12... Um, what you call, yeah, the links of this, of this trip, the chain of the wheel of life. And withering and death would be at the end of it, so you'd have birth, old age, and death. So this would be something that people at the time of the sutra was 
about, what first came about, they would be familiar with, and they'd probably think, oh yes, the wheel of life, you know, the, the 12 links, yes, definitely. Well, that's how things are, we know about that. But what the sutras say, actually, even that is a mystery. Even that, it's, it's not a fixed thing, it's just a formula, actually. And it's helpful to the point that it's helpful, but it's not literally true, it's not literally the case. It's just a useful tool. So the next bit, nor is there pain or cause of pain or cease in pain or noble path to lead from pain. Recognize it? Four noble truths. So um, the, the first thing that the Buddha taught, the sutra is also saying, actually even that, you know, that's also emptiness. That's also um, not fixed, not um, literal. You can't completely rely on that either, not, not in a literal sense. So it's almost like the sutra is saying um, everything we think we know, everything that we think we're familiar with, including ourselves, everything we experience with our senses, everything we can sort of, you know, I know this, I can rely on this. Actually, there's a lot more to it than we think. A lot more to it than we can possibly know. The same with the Buddhist tradition. We can think, oh yes, well I know the wheel of life. I can reel them all off and yes, and you know, I know how it all works. It's the sutra saying, actually no. Not, and, and it even goes and takes a swipe at itself at the end because it, um, um, it talks about, nor is there wisdom to attain. Well, the wisdom is, you know, prania paramita is the perfection of wisdom. No wisdom to attain. This is a perfection of wisdom. There's no wisdom to attain. <laughs> Attainment too is emptiness. It's, it's, we don't know what it is. So it's even sort of saying, you know, don't even rely on the perfection of wisdom. Don't rely on anything as literally true or completely that you've got it sussed. So this is, this, is what, this is what this is about. And it's very sort of, at the time that it came out during the early Mahayana, it was really very radical. It was kind of challenging um, schools of Buddhist thought, which they'd analyzed in the Abhidharma schools, they'd analyzed all of existence and all of experience into these categories that they called dharmas, and thought that everything that you could think of possibly could be analyzed into one or other of these categories. And the perfection of wisdom was coming along saying, actually, You've got it wrong here. You've got a bit fixed here. Things are just a lot more fluid, a lot less predictable, a lot more open than you think. And actually, in terms of practice, that will have a better effect than to think you know it all and you can pin it all down. That's where it came from. And I think, well, certainly for me, it still, it still has that effect. When I get a bit stuck with things, it still has that effect on me to sort of bring it to mind it's empty, it's unpredictable. Then the next bit that comes after that, so know that the Bodhisattva, holding to nothing whatever, but dwelling in pranya wisdom, is freed of delusive hindrance, rid of the fear bred by it, and reaches clear as nirvana. So that holding to nothing whatever. So it suggests to me that anything we hold onto, anything we grasp onto, including the teachings of the Dharma in, in an unhelpful way, not, not, I mean it's obviously helpful to use them, but to sort of hold onto them as a kind of a, 
a mascot or something to hide behind, um, is ultimately a delusive hindrance. That's what it's saying, which breeds fear. If we hold on to things tightly and try and sort of bolster up our sense of um, security with them, that will breed fear. That's a delusive hindrance. It won't help us. And obviously we're going to do this. I mean, I do it all the time. But as soon as we notice that we're doing it, it's worth bearing in mind. It's, it's, it's not going to help us. We need to loosen up. We need to let go. Because when the Bodhisattva of Compassion saw, you know, when he saw that all the five scandals, all of these things were empty, he sundered the bonds that caused him suffering. That was what, that's what it took for him to sort of stop suffering, basically, was to see that all of these things were much more fluid than he realized, empty. I was thinking um, when I was coming over on the train, I was looking over my notes and I was remembering a time when I first got involved um, in the FWB. I think I was, I don't know whether it was before I started working in evolution, but I used to meet up with a Finnish order member called Gunavati, who, um, who lived at the, uh, near the LBC. We used to meet every week and have lunch and I'd just talk about, you know, my practice basically. And I remember at one point, um, well, I suppose I had made a big change. I'd been working as a teacher for many years and I just completely swapped went to work at evolution sort of like you know after the Christmas holidays and my self-view was just sort of thrown up into the air I mean I just had no idea who I was for quite some time and I think it must have been after this I was talking to Gunavati and I was saying to her you know sometimes when I wake up in the morning I feel really scared and she said to me oh this is very good this is progress <laughs> I've always remembered that, actually. I thought that was quite helpful, quite interesting. So that sense, I mean, I don't know whether you experience that sometimes first thing in the morning or other times we just get a sense of, oh, my God, you know. And we can sort of pin it down to things. I sometimes think, oh, it's because I don't know how much money is in my account and I haven't got enough time to do stuff. But actually that thing about existential fear, in a way, it wouldn't matter how much money I had in my account and, you know, if I had all the time in the world, I probably still would experience it. But in a way, probably it's a bit of a taste of this kind of, openness, the open dimension of things, something sort of slightly looser than usual, and it makes me go, <laughs> and it's not major, but you know, it's not like I've completely sort of, um, you know, given up all my sources of security by any means, but to the extent that I have, it sometimes <gasps> that comes up. It's interesting to think, of, oh, actually, that's, that's helpful. That is, that's kind of a sign, perhaps, that I'm in touch with something, because if I thought that everything was fixed and you know, that I could rely on my job going in a particular way, um, having a particular partner, my parents living forever, whatever. If, if, if I thought I could rely on those things, well, I would be deluded. That would be a delusive entrance, you know. And there is fear there to sort of be open to the fact that it's not like that. But, you know, it is more in line with how things actually are. I was thinking as well, there's different things that we can kind of hold on to, isn't there? So we can hold on to possessions, obviously, like a house or a, um, well, particularly a house, I would have thought. You know, things, places where we feel I'm all right because I've got this house or, I, you know, I know where I live. I've got a solid base. Or we can hold on to a partner or family members 
as a sense of who we are or a job or whatever. But there's also sort of things more kind of psychological, more to do with our who we think who we think we are. Um, and I was talking about I suppose I talked about it just there when I gave up my job um, as a teacher. And I was thinking of another time more recently than that when this happened to me um, in a similar kind of way. And it really shook me. And I, I was aware at the time that it was um, helpful, but it felt really quite scary. Um, Suri Matthew was saying that um, I went to India in um, 2001 to work for Karanar. Uh, and before I went to India, I'd had planned for years and years and years that what I was going to do going to go to India and work with women in the movement there and that was what I was going to do once I was ordained probably you know forever and ever I don't know how long I thought I thought but certainly for a long time but when I got to India I had it all planned and all it all worked out when I got to India almost as soon as I arrived at the airport I had this sense of oh my god what have I done I'm not sure this is what I want to do at all actually I thought oh it's all right I've just you know I've just got here that's quite natural little pass kind of thing you know I'll, I'll get used to it but as time went on, it didn't pass. It, it, that feeling stayed. And I went through, it was, I didn't, I didn't realize that I could feel so wobbly and so much like falling apart. I thought I was quite together. You know, I'd done all this stuff, going to work at Evolution, I got ordained and all that sort of stuff. I thought I knew who I was. And I got to India and I just fell apart. I really didn't know who I was under those circumstances, under those conditions. What I wanted to do, I used to cry every single morning. I just felt so sort of, just so disorientated. And it, it didn't go away. It didn't get better as time went on. <laughs> it carried on. And um, after a bit, after maybe a year or so, I, I did my first Karenar appeal. And I did decide after that to come back to Britain and just to sort of um, work for Karen R. here that I couldn't actually it was a bit too strong for me that experience of being in India it was just a bit more than I could cope with a bit too too much openness and bandlessness than I could cope with in a way so I came back to something more familiar even though I was doing the Karen R. appeals one of the reasons I came back was the first Karen R. appeal I ever did I was extraordinarily successful I was one of the most successful fundraisers ever not the most successful but one of the most successful fundraisers ever and um, I thought, wow, this is great, I can do this. And at that time, when I was in India, having all those wobbles, it was so, it was so reassuring to find that I, there was something I could do, you know, and I could do it well. And I thought, well, I know that they want a woman to, a Dhammacharani to be involved in the Karanarapas. Here's something I can do, right, solid ground. Phew. So the next summer I came back and did another Karanar appeal, and I really, really struggled I was a bit, I, I thought I was, wasn't going to make my target. The, set, the first time I'd been more than twice, more than, I think about two and a half times over my target or something. The second time I struggled to make my target. And that was quite, quite a shock. And I remember it was in North London and I was standing on somebody's doorstep um, and people were all saying no to me and I was thinking, oh God, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing very well here at all. And I had a sense, again, it was, it was a beautiful evening. It was a bit later in the year, it was summer. But, um, so I was standing outside on this doorstep with the blue sky above me, thinking, God, you know, I might not get my target this time. Maybe this, maybe this isn't really, you know, the thing that's going to sort of save me from, you know, the insecurity that had come up from working in India. And the thought crossed my mind, it's quite possible that I may never get another standing order for Karanar again, which was quite a big thing for me to think, because I'd invested so much in 
doing it well. And at that point, I always felt like I was tipping over backwards and sort of into the blue sky because it was blue. It's almost like I sort of flipped over backwards and the blue sky was all around me. So there was a sense, there was a strong sense of letting go. It was, it was quite, yeah, it was, it was very powerful. And it felt all right, actually, even though I hadn't a clue what I would do. It was a bit like, well, this could be the case. All right, then. So then what? Then what? You know, it felt like that rather than <coughs> like that. So it's funny how it can tip that sense, that sense of fear and dread and um, groundlessness into freedom. And I think that's the sort of the thing that the sutra is trying to give us a taste of. What comes after that is um, here then the great dharani. That's that the dharani is like the mantra or the spell. It's one translation. Um, the radiant peerless mantra, the pranya paramita, whose words allay all pain. It's lovely. I love the way this keeps coming back in throughout the sutra. These references to alleviating suffering, um, allaying pain. Etc. So it, it is. It is aimed at that, even though it might not appear to be the case in, um, in the first place. And um, I just want to tell you about this particular translation is a bit different. The one in here, it's by um, a chap called Edward Conzer. I mean, there's hundreds of translations of the Heart Sutra. It's probably the most famous, the most well-known sutra in all of the Buddhist world, particularly Japan, Tibet, etc., etc. So there's loads and loads. If you Google it, you'll get hundreds of translations but what I like about this one is at this particular point where he talks about the mantra um, I don't think he says whose words are all paid he says something like for in truth what could go wrong and I love that Um, so I was thinking you know again um, things can only go wrong if we hold on things can only go wrong if we have an investment in them going right and what does going right mean anyway? Yeah? Um, it's an idea that we have, I certainly have, of how things should be, how I want things to be, the direction I want to take things in. And if they don't go, and if they don't go in that way, then that's, that's things going wrong. Um, but of course the world's not like that, is it? <laughs> I was supposed to be walking the Pennine Way with my friend this weekend, and we got as far as the first youth hostel which is part of the Pennine Way. We got first as far as the first youth hostel and stayed there overnight and she woke up the next day and said, I feel really, really ill. We're going to have to go home. <laughs> so, so the best laid plans. But again, you know, it's a bit like, well, just go with it. This is what's happening. You know, I was a bit disappointed, but it was just, you know. So life's unpredictable. I mean, you know, I'm stating the obvious, but how obvious is it to us, really? I mean, how much do we take it on? Um, and the reason that life's unpredictable is that what we perceive as phenomena, if you like, what we perceive as things or events or whatever, arise on the basis of conditions, basic Buddhist teaching, conditionality. And we can't see all the conditions at play in any one time. So I planned my weekend with my friend, not taking into account that there was a virus in her system that was going to hit that weekend. Didn't know it was going to happen. But, you know, we're shocked by things that happen. I am, at least quite a lot of the time. And it's just because... I didn't see it coming, but how could I see it coming? But why would I think it wouldn't be coming? You know, why, am I, why, would, why do I sort of plan my life as if those things don't happen? Of course they happen, you know. Um, so because of emptiness, because of interconnectedness, actually, that thing about when we meditate together and the effect it has, 
All sorts of forces impact on each other to give rise to what we perceive as a temporary phenomenon. Actually, according to um, the Mahayana, it's just a flow anyway. It's not a, not a thing. But we sort of see it as a thing, maybe. A temporary thing or a state. Um, and what we are aware of, the conditions that we are aware of, are only count for a very, very small part of that. Only a very small proportion of the forces that are at work in the universe. So, and it's also true of forces that are at work within ourselves, whether it's a virus or just something that suddenly happens to us, like suddenly we fall in love, completely, you know, completely out of the blue. We find ourselves in love with somebody. And think, Where did that come from? I wasn't expecting that. Or, you know, sometimes we have this decision, this sort of strong urge, right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to leave everything, you know, my job or whatever, and I'm going to go off and do this. You meet people at Buddhist centers who do this. And, well, where did that come from? There's all sorts of things going on within us that we're not even aware of half the time. If we do something that's out of character, that's the reason why, isn't it? So we can't control life because of emptiness. We're not in control. Because of interconnectedness, because of non-fixedness, the best we can do is go with the flow or let go into what actually is rather than what we want or how we think things should be, which is easier said than done. And that's why we need a lot of metta, a lot of loving kindness to sort of hold us in that place while we allow reality or life to sort of be as it is rather than trying to sort of uh, shoehorn it into the shape that we want it to be. We need a lot of kindness to be able to do that and forgiveness of ourselves for wanting to impose thing, you know, our way on the world so that we can feel confident and comfortable. It's quite natural. I think um, I'm thinking of a couple of other sayings from slightly later in the um, in Buddhist history, which I, I really love, and I think they kind of um, encapsulate this sense of, you know, just I suppose surrendering, surrendering to what is. As a Zen saying, which you might have heard, the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. And then Padmasambhava says, may whatever happens, happen. For in truth, what could go wrong? We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.